And now we're going to continue with our uh, series on the book of John. And we're, we've been looking at it. We're in John chapter 4, at the very end of John chapter 4. But I just want to remind you what's been going on as we've led to this point. If you remember what's been going on, first of all, earlier, uh, a, a man named Nicodemus came to see John. This is part of the elite. This is part of the Jewish elite. And he is at the top. He's the, the, the cream of the crust. And, um, and he came to Jesus. I've been thinking about this as we've been studying this, because we're going to look at another person who's part of the elite today, uh, a person of noble birth, and he came to Jesus. Usually, Jesus couldn't go to those kind of people because they, were, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. But then sandwiched in is we have the woman at the well in Samaria, right? And Jesus came to her. Jesus purposely traveled to meet her. And I think the reason is because she would be open to it. And I just think, you know, in all of these meetings that we're going to see, uh, we've seen and are going to see today, the key of what we're seeing is we're seeing that barriers are being broken down. We're seeing how faith and belief works. And we're being taught a master class in how to reach out and, and, and be a part of other people's lives for the glory of God. We see... Uh, Barriers that are cultural barriers from the elite to the, to the poor. We're seeing those being broken. We're seeing class barriers similar to being broken. We're, we're seeing religious barriers being broken. We're seeing racial barriers being broken. We're seeing sexual barriers being broken. All of these things that are going on. And the problem is, is that because we don't live in that day, and I harp on this, I know, we don't live in that day. Oftentimes, we don't sense the, the, how incredible this is. That, that Nicodemus would go talk to Jesus, that Jesus would go talk to this woman, that a nobleman would come to Jesus. But all, of these, all three of these events are astonishing events in that day and age. They're astonishing, which leads me to think, am I doing anything here in my culture that's astonishing? Because typically, that's what happens when Christians get on fire for God and make things happen. The early church, what they did was astonishing, and people were astonished at it. People were mad at them. We know from some of the historians that wrote in that day, Pliny the Younger and others like that, what they, they wrote about how these crazy Christians are doing things that are not supposed to be done. They're breaking down barriers. They're breaking down walls. They're crossing over into enemy territory. They're doing things that are astonishing. And to my chagrin, I don't know how much of my life right now is astonishing. That, that concerns me. It makes me think and stop and, and take stock. And so all these barriers are being broken down. And Jesus is calling us to be barrier breakers. He's calling us to do that. He's calling us to do things that impact people's lives for eternity and sometimes make us uncomfortable or even can be dangerous. And so uh, in this closing of the chapter, we have this event that shows the power of Jesus to heal. And, and again, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are living this to be able to relate better to it. So let me just, uh, John now is just bringing us kind of up to date. He says, after the two days, that was the two days in Samaria at the village of Sychar, Jesus, and, and 
many of them believed. We had the first, you know, interestingly, the first uh, huge amount of belief in Jesus occurred in an area that the Jews thought was cursed, and they hated them. So after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Uh, When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for for they also had been there. So we have this interesting, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, he says, uh, uh, Jesus had said that that a prophet's without honor in his own country, and then he goes to his country and they welcome him. And first time as I was studying this, I'm like, John, you know, what in the world are you writing here? But I think it's understandable when we begin to realize what's going on here. First of all, this is an aside by John saying Jesus had said that probably a number of times. And, and it's not necessarily he said it right at that moment, but John is doing that to help us to understand the text. Why? Because the text would look like they're just welcoming him. But the point is, he's saying that they're just like, yeah, the miracle man is back. The miracle. Why? It tells us because they'd seen what Jesus had done, the things he'd done in Jerusalem. They love that. He does miracles. He confronts the ruling elite. We like that. Let's give it up for Jesus. That's what they're saying. You know, it's like our famous son is back. We can all hang with him. But here's the deal. We got to remember in John 2, uh, in John 2, verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. Those are the signs they were so excited about. And they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about man about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He's already been giving us warnings that this kind of welcoming is very short-lived. This kind of welcoming is very superficial. You know, Jesus knew that for many of them, the welcoming, the honor they were giving him would be fleeting. They're just looking for more cool, cool stuff. And as long as he kept doing it, they're good with that because they wanted the emotional payoff. They wanted the thrill And Jesus knew as soon as things got hard or just not fun, they would bounce. They didn't have faith. That's what's important. And that's what's coming up here that John's going to teach us about because it's going to delve into the question of faith and what is faith. We talked about it earlier, and now he's going to give us an illustration that we can pick apart and understand of how faith works. And he starts here with telling us what faith is not. Faith is not mere infatuation with something, of going, wow, this is so cool. Look at this. Come to our village. I mean, if you've got somebody who can heal people, that's pretty handy to have around, right? And it, this happens all the time. Sometimes people, um, they, their lives get just totally screwed up, and they're struggling, and they say, you know what? I should go to church. That's what I should do. That's the good thing to do. So they start coming to church, and they meet people, and people welcome them, and people pray for them, and things start getting better. And everybody's like, yes, God is so good. And then after a little bit, they just move on. Or maybe things get worse, and they, and they, and they quit. It was, it was just an infatuation. It was just for the moment. And so this happens all the time. I mean, Jesus explained this to us in the parable of the sower. You remember the parable of the sower? Sower's sowing seed. He sows some on the hard path. Seed sits right up on the ground, is easy to eat. The birds come and eat it. He sows some in the rocky soil. Now, this isn't soil that has a lot of rocks mixed into it. There was, in, in a number of places in Israel, this, this 
the foundation there was rock, and there'd just be a few inches of soil, and there'd be rock. And they knew where those places were. Those are not a good place to grow crops. Why? Because as soon as it got hot, the crop, the food, the, uh, the, uh, all, all, the plant would just spread out along the, uh, just a couple inches under the ground. And then when it got hot, that sh- small part of soil would just bake, and it would kill the plants. And so he said, the, the rocky soil, he says, uh, it gets hot, it gets baked, and it dies. He said, that's like a person who receives it at first with joy. Seems pretty happy about the whole deal. But as soon as things get tough, they, they're out. Or the thorny ground, he says, where the seed is choked by thorns. And he says, what is that? That's the deceitfulness of riches. That's the cares of life. That's everything. This is so our, our culture. That's everything that negatively impacts me. And so he says, that thorny soil is those people who are like this. What's in it for me? Oh, it's good. I like it. Now things get tough. Ah, and it chokes. It causes them not to grow. It causes, it makes it harder for them. And then he says, the good soil, the soil that hears the word and understands it, takes it into the mind and works out the meaning and implications of it. That's the parable of the sower. And now we're going to see this played out right in front of us. So the first thing we're going to see here is the desperate plea, verses 46 to 49. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went out to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So let's look at this for a second, just in terms of map, I hope you can see this well. In the green, what you see, that's Judea. And then the purple area is Samaria. And then as you move up towards the orangish, I guess it is, that, that is Galilee. And Jesus purposely went straight through the purple part. Most Jews would bear to the, uh, bear to the east, kind of to the right there. And they'd go up the brown part across the other side of the Jordan River so that they wouldn't set one foot on Samarian soil. And Jesus went straight down the middle, straight down the middle where Sychar is. And then as he moved into that orange part, he comes to Cana of Galilee where he already had accomplished, he'd already done the miracle of the water into wine. And so when we see this, this, uh, um, this royal official come, we have a man, and it's probably a man of noble birth, looking at the word in the Greek. It doesn't just mean somebody who works for the royalty. It means somebody who's a part of the royalty. They may work. He probably worked for uh, Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. So he's kind of like a king, just not quite, as, not quite as well paid. So he was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he's got some noblemen who are working for him. And this is probably one of those people, all right? So we have a nobleman here that we're looking at. And he's probably a Gentile. Um, where he says he's from, he says here that, uh, wait a minute, I'm looking at the wrong passage. There he goes. He, he says this nobleman had come arrived in, in, in Galilee from Judea, he, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So this nobleman, a little bit north, about 25 miles away, is, is where a, a huge trade route came through, and there was a major tax collecting area right there, and he was probably involved in that. So he's probably a Gentile. He was probably had the, the job everyone loves, collecting taxes. He's probably someone that the local people did not love. And so we see here, that there's walls being broken down. And, and this man is coming to him. For someone like that to go to Jesus and, and go to him in person and ask him for something, 
is another one of those things, this is astonishing. Okay, we have to understand this is astonishing. If you are a nobleman, you don't go see somebody. You send a representative to tell them what to do. You only see somebody if they're above you. That's the only way you go in person is if they're above you. So this man now is going to a poor person. This man's going to a person who, who is, you know, his whole, he's, he's the lowest of the low, and he's going in person. This is astonishing, right? He's a nobleman. He's of noble birth. He looks around him at the people around him, and he thinks these are low, distasteful, uncouth, ignorant people. And he humbles himself to go to one of them. You know, I've enjoyed um, the last few years watching the uh, show The Crown and watching that. I'm a history buff, and so every once in a while, my wife and I are watching it, or my wife and I, one of the kids, and I'm going, I know what's coming next. Because I know the history of the events that were going on. I enjoy that kind of stuff. But what has struck me throughout the whole series is seeing these people who grow up with this sense of entitlement, this sense of privilege. And they, as you see it on the show, they view it as a curse. You know, we, we, but they don't want to give it up, right? This whole idea that every moment of your life, people are serving you. People lay out your clothes. People bring you your food. People cook all your food. People do all, they do everything for you. And there's this huge sense of entitlement. There's huge, and it's human nature. There's this huge sense of we are above you. In, in one part where they're trying to make the, uh, the, the, the royalty become more accessible to people, just every once in a while, they'll get some random people and they'll line them up and they'll go down the line and they'll shake their hands and just, oh, what's your name? Oh, what do you do? Oh, that's very interesting. And they do that. And they felt like now we're, now we're relatable. They are, they're like us now because so, they did that once a week for 30 minutes. You know, it, it, this total disconnect. And here, you know, we see this man. There's this barrier being broken down. That's a huge barrier. He looks around him. He's of noble birth. He's a Gentile. He's probably from Rome, and he's been sent there. And here's these people they've conquered, and, and they're, it's just agricultural people, and, and, and they're just it's slaves, and it's poor people, and they have this weird religion. And so you just look down on them. You don't go see them. And now this man has humbled himself to go see them. Now think about that. What drove him to that? Well, we see it. He's desperate. It's his son. It's his son. As we look at our society today and the polarization that has been happening in our society today, we have people on two sides oftentimes. And they both look at each other and say, dumb, wrong, stupid, ignorant. Right? And God is saying, I want to break that down. So that if you're, I mean, let's, let's, we'll, we'll name some names here. Here we go. So if you're a Republican, a strong Republican, and you look at some of the things that are being, and you say, That's, they're wrong, they're stupid, they're dumb, they're so dumb. If you're a Democrat, you go, they're so dumb. They're so, right? What is happening? We have all these people that are becoming elitists. They're looking down on anyone who disagrees with them. And, and, and our culture encourages this at this time. And Jesus is saying, no, 
No, not that way. Not that way. That's not the way. Because you think about it. If there are people that you look down upon and you think they're ignorant and you think they're stupid, you think they're always wrong, what would it take to get you to go to that person and humble yourself? What would it take to break down that wall? In this situation, it took his son. It's interesting, the nobleman, he uses a word when he speaks to Jesus, and it's not just my son. It's, it's, it's my baby. It's my, my precious one. The Greek, it adds on to it to give this idea of this is, this is my pride and joy. This is everything to me. It's everything. You know it's everything to him. Why? Because he's breaking down this huge barrier, and he's going to the ignorant ones, and he's going to the lowly ones. He's going to the worthless ones. He's going to one of them, and he's saying, help me. Help me. What would it take for us to cross that divide? and humble ourselves, and be peacemakers. And so here we have this this man. And it's his son. He loves his son. I mean, you think if if it was someone you dearly loved. And we have people here that's happened to. And you hear that there's this miracle worker. You hear people you trust say, I saw him do a miracle. And so you think, I will try. I will, I, I'll try. And so here for this man of this high position, he's going, this is going to be hard, but I'll do it. I'll try it for my son. I'll do anything for my son. Because there's a flicker of hope now, and you go, and you beg for help, and nothing is too low. And, it's, and it's, it's astonishing, because in the Greek it says, in the Greek it says he kept on begging. It uses this idea that he begged, and 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 he begged for his son. He did something that no nobleman would ever do in his right mind, but he was out of his right mind. So this tells us something. Let's look for a moment. Let's understand something about what biblical faith is. Because many people think faith uh, is believing without any rational thought. It's just, it's just this idea of you just, you know, you believe it in spite of the fact that you don't think it's true. And nothing could be further from the truth. So I'm going to do something here. You know, uh, last week I did a weird outline, and I know how shocking it was for some of you. This week I'm going to do something. I'm just going to do two separate outlines. We're going to run them simultaneously. One is just two points about the passage, and one is two points about faith. So I want you to see something about faith. First of all, faith begins with rational thought. Because for many of us, maybe you're struggling with your faith. All of us do at times. We struggle, and we, and we, and we, and we, and we wrestle Okay, first thing is, faith begins with rational thought. Faith begins, starts with information. It starts with truth. It starts with evidence. Where did it start with this nobleman? People he trusted told him, that man does miracles. I saw him do a miracle. I was in, I was in Jerusalem, you know, a week ago, and I saw that man do a miracle. And I'm probably saying, Your Honor, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I saw him do a miracle. And he's thinking, wow, that's a strong testimony. That's a person I trust. And he hears it again, and he hears it again. And so what does he do? He starts thinking, maybe this is true. I need to investigate this. And so it starts with rational thought. Faith starts with information. It starts with truth. It starts with evidence, because that's where he started. 
It's like getting married. Getting married is a huge step of faith. Ladies, do you look at that and go, man, that guy's a hunk. I'll marry him. Maybe jokingly, I hope you say it, but not, not for real, I hope. Guys, you should say, ooh, la, la, and you're ready to walk the aisle, right? You don't need to find out about character. I don't care about moral character. I don't care about spiritual character. I don't need the facts. This feels good. Now, okay, I, don't, I think I don't have to say that this is that stupid. <laughs> I'm really hoping that's off self. Yeah, but some people close their mind to facts and go the stupid way. But what would be the smart way to do this? You'd learn about the person. This is what dating is about, to learn about the person, to grow together, and to drop a bomb. This is one of the reasons why the Bible says sex before marriage is wrong, because sex clouds everything. Sex clouds your thinking about the person. It clouds your mind. It clouds your rational thought. You begin to think, but this is so awesome, so I can put up with that. So thinking is an integral part of faith. This is in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight in the Greek here is this idea of outward appearance. Just what you see, what can be manipulated, what is easily fooled. So to walk by faith, not by sight, means that you figure out what you know to be true, and then you're not fooled by appearances. You're not fooled by other things. Because you know what the truth is. So we walk by faith, not by sight. You're not fooled by appearances or moods or feelings or fears. I shared this one time a while back, but it's, it's, it's a perfect example of me being stupid. Um, I, I wanted this sports car. It, it, it was just a particular car. I really liked it. I, I, I liked how it looked. It had a big engine, so it was fast and quick and had a wide stance, so it handled really well. And, and I wanted it. And I had my closest friend uh, was a mechanic. And uh, just said, Bob, that, no, it's not a good car. It's not reliable. It's not reliable. But I wanted it, right? And so what does he know, right? He probably doesn't work on very many of these cars. So I asked around until I found a mechanic who said, yeah, I think they're pretty reliable. Yes. I don't know you, but, man, you're a trustworthy source, Right? So then I talked to my wife, and she said, Bob, do we need it? I was, and then she said, by the way, also, right now, financially, we're not on a strong, strong financial footing to be able to, uh, to afford this car. But I wanted it. So what does she know? She's trying to ruin my life, I think. And so I begged, and I begged, and I begged. And finally, my wife exasperated said, yeah, get the stupid car. I said, she wants me to get it. Yes. So the people closest to me said, this is not a good idea. And you know what happened? I lost faith. I lost faith in them. And my feelings, my emotions took over, and I got the car. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was almost like God specifically made it be a special disaster so that I would learn that lesson. So I am humbling myself by telling you I'm an idiot sometimes. But this is how we do it. This is what we do. 
It's like if your dentist tells you you need a certain procedure because a tooth is going bad. And it's starting to hurt sometimes now. And the dentist just tells you it's only going to get worse. And it's going to be harder to fix. You need to take care of this. Now, you know your dentist and you trust your dentist. You have faith in her, right? And so you schedule the procedure. But maybe the morning of the procedure, you start getting cold feet, right? Your heart, your emotions begin to tell you things. There will be blood. There will be pain. Maybe it's not so important right now. Maybe you go, that didn't hurt. I think I'm okay. I'll cancel. What's happening? You're losing faith. You're losing faith in your mind. Your, your heart, your emotions start pulling and, and you get afraid and you lose faith. But what, what could you do then? Well, if your mind, if your rational thinking kicks in, you start saying to yourself, wait, my dentist said I need to do this. I trust my dentist. Other people say I need to do this and I trust them. I know I need it. And if I'm gonna have to have it done sooner or later, and if I do it later, it will hurt more. So you talk to yourself. That's how you deal when you're losing faith. You talk to yourself. You remind yourself of the truth. What's the truth here? That's what faith is. So I want you to see something here. Faith is not the absence of thinking. Faith is complete thinking. It's using your mind. We see this all the time in Scripture. Here it is, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you depressed? Why the unease within me? Why do I have this feeling of just things aren't good? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him for the salvation of his presence. Oh, my God, my soul despairs within me. Therefore, I remember you. What is he telling himself? He's saying, why are you feeling this way? Stop and think. Why are you feeling? Nail it down. I'm feeling this way because somebody said something was really mean, and it hurt me, and now I'm mad, and I feel this, and I'm churning. Okay, so focus on God. And, he, and, and I love it. He tells God, God, I feel this way. He tells the truth. God wants you to tell him the truth. And then he says, and I will remember him. What is that? I will remember what God has done in the past. I will rehearse to myself how God has been faithful. I will begin to understand that this cannot hurt me because of my relationship with God. And I talk to my, he talks to himself. So unbelief is just listening to your heart and your emotions. Faith is talking to yourself and talking to God. And you've heard people sometimes say, and this is why this is so wrong, people say faith is opposed to thinking. Faith is mindless. Faith opened my brain. Before I was a Christian, all I did was just react to stuff. Everything was about me. So if circumstances were good, I'm doing pretty good. If circumstances aren't so good, I'm doing terrible because it's all about me. And it's all about my circumstances. That's what drove me. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ opened my mind to the fact that I could get above that stuff. I didn't have to live there. I still struggle with it, but I don't have to struggle with it anymore. It's not who I am. I can go, I can talk to myself. I can begin to rehearse in my, in my mind what God has done in my life. The times where God has rescued me, God has saved me, God has blessed me, God has all these different things. I can remember those things and they reassure me, yes, 
Faith starts with rational thinking. Why? Because now I have a new standard of reality. I have a new standard of truth. This nobleman, he ascertained the facts and he went to Jesus. This is the beginning of faith. But then Jesus says something kind of awkward, right? Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, calm down before my child dies. So Jesus says something here. Um, and, and here's where he uses that word, which is translated child, my baby. But what is happening? Jesus sees a weakness in this man's faith, and he, he, he understands that everyone around him is struggling with the same weakness. This man thinks that Jesus is some kind of a miracle worker. You know, it's this idea, and people believe that back then. There was this idea that some sort of power had attached itself to a person. And so everywhere that person went, the power could manifest itself. And so he reveals that because he's saying, please come to my child. That's the only way you're going to heal him. You got to get there. Let's go. Right? Kind of like a, a, a Miracle Max kind of a thing, you know? You, you go, the healer, he's got the power, and then the power, you know, gets in you, and then you got to, you know, don't try to do anything too rough for a while, you know, let it have its effect. It was that kind of a thing. And so, and so this is how he's looking at Jesus. The man does not realize the power that he's dealing with. And so Jesus is pushing him further. Jesus understands how much this man loves his son. He is not trying to drive him away. He's trying to push him to another level of faith. And so he's talking to him and also everyone around there. He, he's, he wants this man to see something, that the mere word out of his mouth is enough. He wanted the man to begin to understand that he's dealing with God, not just some miracle worker. And he's telling him, just because I can do miracles, you want me, but there's more to this than you even realize. And this man desperately in verse 49 says, please, he's about to die. In the Greek, he says, come down before my child dies. That word for dies means it's imminent. It, he said, when he left home, it was close. He says, any minute now, my boy's going to die. Please come. It didn't even occur to him that there is even hope if his child has already died. And so we have this desperate plea. Now we're going to see the miracle as it's played out. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word, there's the next step of faith, and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. And so Jesus hears the man's cry. He answers the man's cry, but he wants to teach him that lesson. He wants the man to understand who he is. And so he sets up a challenge for him. He says to him, basically, go, I'm not coming. Go. Believe me on this. Trust me on this. And this man takes up the challenge. He believes. He acts on that belief. He goes. He thought it through, and he decided to commit himself to the word of Jesus and go back. You know, man, what a trip that must have been. Scared out of his wits, thinking, I needed to bring him. He's not coming with me. He told me to go alone. Can you imagine? Do you realize sometimes we get ourselves in those situations? 
where we're just not sure what's going on. And God is saying to us, trust me, trust me, trust me. It can happen in big ways. It can happen in little ways. But God wants us to know that there's another in the fire. Whatever the fire is that you're going through, he walks with you in that. He weeps with you in that. So the servants come. The proof of the miracle is given. This leads to even further belief. We see these levels of how belief happens, how faith happens. And so point two of our outline within an outline. Faith begins with rational thought. Faith grows through commitment. So rational thinking starts it, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just rational thinking. It's learning and then acting upon it, committing yourself to it. You know, with the illustration of the dentist, you have to commit yourself to the dentist. You have to show up for the procedure, for the healing to happen. And then you have the procedure, and it gets better. And so now you have more information to deal with, like the nobleman whose son is healed. So then what happens? Somebody said, how'd it go? It went great. Man, my dentist is awesome. You become an evangelist for the dentist. Right? That's how that works. It grows. It's a process. And it steps and builds on each one. Starts with rational thinking. But then it can't stop there. It has to keep going. See, truth leads to action. And action brings more information and more truth, which leads to more action. And you become more committed. I used to work with teenagers and... uh, take them to camps and everything, you know, and all the, the cool stuff that they would do. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the first things they always did t- kind of towards the beginning was a thing called a trust fall, right? You guys have probably all done this, been there, done that, right? That whole trust fall thing. And the problem was I really struggled with the trust fall. And the re- not just trust issues, but this. I, I got like 10 teenagers standing below me as I'm standing on a table or a stump or whatever, and they're going to catch me but I know these teenagers, and I know that sometimes they think it would be so funny to do something to Bob, but then I'm thinking, but I'm going to be the one who's going to fall from eight feet, and they're going to all laugh, and I'm going to have a concussion, right? And so what happens? If you've ever seen somebody that struggles with a trust fall, they're like this, and they say, stay rigid, stay rigid, and they do this, and they fall, they fall gluteus maximus first, right? Because in their thinking, it was what I was thinking, that's the most padded part of my body. And if I'm going to fall from eight feet and not be caught, I'd rather land <clears throat> on my gigantic rumpus than on my head, right? That's what, that's, all that happens in about one-tenth of a second of thinking, right? You just, your mind goes like crazy. And so they, they, this, this trust fall thing, and they would say, no, no, no. I'd start, they go, no, no, don't bend, don't bend, stay rigid. And I'm like, you get up here and stay rigid. Yeah, I'm not like, guy telling me what to do. It, 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 was, it was scary for me. I didn't trust the people. Trust fall. Nope, not happening. Because what happens? As soon as you start to lean back, what happens? Gravity takes control. You're out of control. There's my trust issue right there. I want to be in control. And as soon as I lean back and start to fall, I'm out of control. Something else is in control. Gravity's in control. And then about 10 morons that I know well are in control. And so I'm, I don't like this situation at all. I don't like this situation. None of us do. We don't like being out of control. That's the point. I lost my faith. 
in those teens. I never had a lot in those teens, but I'd lost my faith. Because why? Because faith would be to bend and remain stiff. Faith is to show up and have the procedure. Faith is no prenup. Faith is no escape hatch. Faith is giving up control. And our culture teaches us never to give up control. The nobleman, he tried to control the narrative. You need, please come. Even in his begging, right? He's saying, come. It doesn't occur to him to say, you can do this. We see this later with a centurion who figures that out. And Jesus is astonished. He's like, man, here's this guy that all of Israel hates, and he's got all more faith than everybody in all of Israel, right? So the nobleman, he's trying to control the narrative to be in some sort of control because he believes he knows exactly what needs to happen and how it needs to happen. And so uh, Jesus gives him a choice. What do you want? You want your son healed or do you want to get your own way? You want to hang around here and keep trying to force me to come? Or you just want to go back and see your son's alive? Faith must move beyond thinking to commitment. So there's, there's got to be a time. There's going to be a time. There's got to be a time where you decide. You make a commitment. You say, I'm in. It starts with becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, realizing you're a sinner and that Christ is your Savior on the basis of his life and his death and his resurrection. All things that you need to think about rationally. And then it's accepting his free gift of salvation and following him for the rest of your life. But it doesn't stop there. See, that's how it starts when we make that commitment. That's how it starts. But it doesn't stop there. It's a series of commitments we'll be making for the, for the rest of our life. For the rest of our life, all the time. I, I always struggle. I struggle with, I, my mind goes to the worst case scenarios. You know, when we think about things, <clears throat> we, we bought a new dishwasher and, and, and it got installed and, and it's just like, I'm so excited. I mean, I don't, what do I care about dishwashers? But it's new and it's mechanical. I'm like, oh, <laughs> push the button, right? And so it starts running. And all of a sudden it goes, eh, 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 and error code pops up. And I'm like, ugh, ugh. And then I'm thinking, oh, I know they're going to say, I know what they're going to say. They're going to say it was installed wrong. They're going to say it's my fault. They're going to say I should have done it. They're going to say, this is a, so I called. And they're like, oh, man, we're so sorry. We'll send somebody right over and we'll get this straight. And I'm like, you will? <laughs> nice, right? But what did I, I was ready. Oh, man, I'd already gotten out the warranty. I'd already gotten out the purchase order. I'd already gotten out, I was ready to take this guy to town, right? And he's just like, no, we're really, oh, <laughs> wasting my time. And this, this is what happens to us. God says, trust me, trust me. And we want to be in control. We want to be in control. This nobleman, he thought that, that, that Jesus had some sort of access to power, but in reality, Jesus was the power. He had to take Jesus. This is, this is what's so important. He had to take Jesus at his word. We have to take Jesus at his word. We have to take God at his word. It's not, it's not enough to just say, I believe in God. The question is, do you believe God? Not just believe in him, do you believe him? And when he took Jesus at his word, look what happened. His whole household ended up believing, which is leading to deeper commitment. What keeps us from following Jesus, even as a believer? What keeps us from deeper commitment to him, from trusting him more? It's because there's something else we're trusting. 
we're putting our faith in something else and we don't want to give it up. And it could be all kinds of things. Our culture gives us all kinds of things to put our faith in. It could be, be, be in our smarts, our ability to think. It, 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 could be, it could be in our looks, you know. And, and those things, I mean, I know you look up here and you think, what a gorgeous hunk of a man, but it fades. Trust me, it's fading. It's going away. And, and we put our trust in these things. Some people, sometimes people get very religious in an effort to get things from God, to get him to serve them. But hard times always reveal the fallacy of that because that's not Christianity, that's manipulation. And so the interesting thing to me is, when do we grow? So many times it's during the difficult times. It's through the heart. This man grew in a difficult time. This is what happened with him. God allows difficulties and struggles into our lives to push us towards him, to show us the ridiculousness of the things we trust and the things we worship. It doesn't mean he causes them. I mean, he can, but it doesn't mean he causes them, but he can use them. Oftentimes, they're just the consequences of living in a fallen, sinful world. But God says, I can use this in your life. You can grow deeper. The key to this man's salvation, the key to this man's, the salvation of his household was the sickness of his son. It, think about this. It drove this man to the place he would never go willingly. He would never go see Jesus willingly but he was driven there because he realized suddenly the fallacy of what he was trusting in. My boy, my future, my, my name, you know, my, my legacy. And suddenly it's all at stake and he goes, what am I going to hope in now? And it drove him to Jesus. And if this man could speak to us now, he would tell us it's worth it. It was worth it. And so we need to struggle when, uh, when we struggle, I mean, we need to argue with ourselves, like David talked about arguing with ourselves. We need to speak truth to ourselves. We need to remember what God has done in the past. <clears throat> we need to doubt our doubts. What do I mean by that? We have this incredible faith in our ability to figure out what is the best thing to do, even though we have a proven track record of screwing that whole process up. I mean, you think about that. I brought this up the other time. Think about 15 years ago in your life. 15 years ago, what did you think was important? 15 years ago. What did you think was cool 15 years ago? What was the one thing you really wanted to have 15 years ago? What were the clothes you wore 15 years ago? And you see pictures now and you're like, oh, man, what was I thinking? I wasn't thinking, right? Okay, you look back at 15 years ago and you think, I was pretty stupid. 15 years from now, you're going to look back to now and you're going to go, what a dope. We have a proven track record of, of not being able to get things right very well. And so what we need to do then is we need to doubt our doubts because that's what they're playing off of, our thought of what, how things should be and how things should happen. We need to doubt our ability to know what the best thing is because we get it wrong so often. And the word of God tells us, stay grounded in the truth. Speak the truth to yourself in difficult times. Remember what God has done. All of that begins with that first step of establishing a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and moving on from there. And we see that played out in beautiful detail in this story of this nobleman. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You, you give us so much truth. There's more here than we could ever fully understand. And yet you give us enough to know and see areas where our life must change. Help us, God, first of all, to be people who follow hard after you. To be people also, Lord, who are willing to break down barriers. Who are willing to do, do things and be with others that we would rather not do and rather not be with. And in doing that, we see just as the nobleman discovered, that is the place where growth is. That is the place where ultimately joy lies. And that's the place where we then become more and more like your son, Jesus, whom has given everything to us. And so, Lord, in small ways, in our ways that we know are sometimes feeble, we want to give back and tell you we love you. Help each one of us, Lord, to know for ourselves, to understand, rationally thinking through what the truth is, and then acting on it, committing to it. And then, Lord, we thank you that then there's this process you never let us go. You build and build and grow and grow. You refine us even more. In Jesus' name, amen.